As we have our opening prayer, let me read these words from Isaiah. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Father, we're so grateful that you are preparing the way for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we have been looking at the period uh, leading up to his first coming, the first advent, and we have seen that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. We know that it will yet further be the fullness of time when he returns a second time. And we know that you are preparing the highway in the desert as it were, that you are calling out your people in the midst of a desolate world in which we live, a spiritually desolate world. And Father, we're praying that you will move in a mighty way in this land of ours where we see so much evil cropping up in, at every hand. And yet we know that you are sovereign, you are in control. So we pray for a mighty miracle of God to bring great revival across this land of ours. Father, may that revival begin in our own hearts. Each of us, Father, needs to walk with you with greater intensity of purpose, with greater commitment to the word, because it is the word of God which sanctifies us. And so guide us this morning, we pray, as we uh, look at this particular period of time and uh, the biblical passages that relate to it. Grant to us insight and understanding. Bless each one here today, Lord. Meet each need by your mighty power, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we noted that when the Hebrew Scriptures were first translated into the Greek language in the city of Alexandria in Egypt around the middle of the third century before Christ, a, a translation which is called the Septuagint, which is symbolized by the three Roman numerals LXX, which means 70 in Roman numerals, that this particular translation included 15 books beyond what we know as our common Protestant Old Testament scripture. These 15 books would later be rejected by the rabbis at what's called the Council of Jamnia, which occurred around the year 100. But those 15 books would make their impact in the, the canon of the scripture. The word that is used for these 15 books is apocrypha, which means hidden. And the idea is that these books were mysterious, that they had certain truths in them that were secret, and therefore the common person shouldn't you know, be exposed to them. They were believed, at least by the translators in Alexandria, that they should be incorporated into the translated text. But the rabbis in the subsequent generations and literally centuries finally came to the conclusion that these 15 books, which you see listed here, beginning with the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Tobit, Judith, Esdras, we've read from 1 Maccabees because it has a lot of good historical information, that this, that this particular list of books does not fit with the rest of the uh, books of the Hebrew canon. Unfortunately, when the Vulgate was translated, which is the Latin, the main Latin version that was translated, what became the, the Bible of the Roman Catholic Church, 
which was translated around the year 400 by Jerome, that the leadership of the church insisted that he include the whole Septuagint in the translation into Latin. And so those 15 books became incorporated into the Roman Catholic canon of Scripture. Now later at the Council of Trent, which occurred in the 16th century, the prayer of Manasseh and what became called in the Catholic Bible 4th Esdras and 3rd Esdras were not included. They considered them to be too far out to actually be included, so the Catholic Church continued to keep 12 of the 15 as part of the Roman Catholic canon. Because the Orthodox Church was a Greek church, the Orthodox Church just kept the Septuagint as their Old Testament translation, you know, updating it, modifying it. And, and so both the Orthodox and Catholic Church includes the Apocrypha as part of the canon. The Jews did not include it in their canon after the Council of Jamnia, which occurred around the year 100 in Israel. Jamnia is down on the coast. And so when the Protestants translated the Scripture and, and began to produce what we know as the Protestant versions of Scripture, some of them wrestled with the question, especially Luther. He question, wrestled with this a little bit, and he wasn't too sure that maybe 1 Maccabees ought not to be included in the canon. But most of the Protestants finally came to the conclusion that the, these apocryphal books should not be considered canonical. Now, you will find that in the Anglican or a scripture that the Apocrypha is included, but usually it's included as a separate section in the middle between the Testaments. So we, we looked at this last time, and it was because of the uncertainty of the authorship of most of these, plus the fact that there's a discontinuity, an incongruity between these 15 and the rest of the scripture that Protestants at least have not considered them to be a part of scripture. Now, there are other writings, other Jewish writings that were produced in the intertestamental period and in the New Testament period, a period from beginning around 200 B.C. to maybe A.D. 200, that have never been considered canonical or even near canonical by anybody with any real authority. These are called the pseudepigrapha, which means false writings. Pseudo is false and pigrapha has to do with writing. Uh, the false writings. And they're not called false writings because they're full of heresy, even though, you know, that could be argued in some cases, but because they are, the purported authors are people who were dead long before these books were ever written, like Adam and Eve, you know, and Enoch, and Isaiah, and so forth. Things that were attributed to them which they couldn't have written and, and didn't write. And so they've been called pseudepigraphic literature. There's about two dozen of these works that are collected either fully or in part. I have a list of about 18 of them here. The standard collection of the pseudepigrapha, in case you're wondering, that's how the word's spelled. Some of which are legendary, the book of Jubilee and the book of Adam and Eve and apocalyptic. A lot of these books are apocalyptic because they were written during the time of the Seleucid dynasty, when things are starting to fall apart in, in Israel, and the Hasmonean period, when the kings and the chaos and the Romans are coming in, uh, they, they believe the end time was here. It was just like many people today, today feel the end times are, are near at hand. And, I, and, you know, I think there's a lot more evidence of it today than there was then, but you have to view it from their perspective. They only saw the perspective of their little world. They didn't know China and America and all the rest of the world we know today. 
And so a lot of apocalyptic writing, you know, writing came out that has to do with the end coming, you know, kind of deal. This is sort of the late great planet Earth kind of writing, some of it anyway. You know, only that, of course, is scriptural, and this is a little bit more uh, legendary. And, and teaching 3rd and 4th Maccabees and, and so on down the line. There are more works than this. This is the standard pseudepigrapha. There's another half a dozen or so which are sometimes included. And beyond that, there's at least that many more which are largely known just because their name is referred to in other literature, but we don't have any part of that particular piece of writing. And so this particular uh, set of writings has had very little impact on the Jews or the Christians, even though Christians have had a tendency to, to uh, produce these writings just to see what people thought back then when they were actually first written. But there are Jewish writings that are a little more familiar to us. These are the Jewish writings that we know as the New Testament. And, and sometimes we don't stop to realize that these were Jewish writings, with possibly the exception of Luke, if, if he was truly Greek himself. These writings were produced by, by the Jews. And in the New Testament, of course, we have the gift to us of the story of the coming of the Jewish Messiah. When was Jesus born? People will say, well, A.D. 1, right? Wrong. Because when the estimate was made as to when Jesus was born, which was 1,400 years ago, there were many factors that were not known. And as a result, the estimate of the birth of Christ was off anywhere from five to eight years. Jesus was born somewhere between eight and five B.C. We know this at least in part by the fact that Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. And of course, he's the one who had all the children killed in Bethlehem in order to try to wipe out Jesus. And so Jesus had to be born by then anyway. And uh, then others say that in the year 8 B.C. there was a certain conjunction of all the planets that might have been the star of Bethlehem. Well, I don't put too much stake in that. But nevertheless, 8 B.C. is an outside possibility. Where was Jesus born? In a third-rate town, in a third-rate province, in the mighty Roman Empire. He was born in the hometown of Bethlehem, which was the hometown of David. And he was born into the lineage of David, which is why he is referred to as the son of David, right? In Greek, his name was Jesus. In Hebrew, the equivalent is Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. The title in Greek of what he was is Christ, or what we have in English as Christ. Whereas in Hebrew, that is Messiah, which means the anointed one. Good. Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great in Judea and in Rome. Augustus Caesar, Caesar the August Caesar, Augustus. He was on the imperial throne. And as I mentioned to you last time, Augustus Caesar is considered to have been the greatest and mightiest of all the Roman emperors. He was the first and yet the greatest of them all. He ruled the longest of any Roman emperor. And he's the one who did all the forming 
you know, he's the one who established the major legions for the defense of the frontier. He's the one who, who, who brought in the first police force into Rome, the first fire department into Rome, and did all the things that were needed to organize. He was a fantastic organizer. He's often portrayed in statues with, you know, armor on and everything else, and yet there's no evidence he ever fought any battles. Well, you know, he did have to do with the uh, third, the second triumvirate and did participate there. But I mean as emperor. He, he was, as far as we know, never led men in battle. He had done that before he became emperor. The scripture tells us that in the 15th year of this man's successor, who was the successor to Augustus Caesar? Tiberius. Tiberius. Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius was son-in-law and stepson to Augustus. So you begin to see a little bit of the uh, uh, in National Enquirer kind of stuff <laughs> that took place in the royal household of Rome. I mean, he really gets sick after a while if you look at it in much detail. This wasn't quite as sick because at least Tiberius wasn't uh, too closely related by blood to, to Augustus. But during the 15th year, we're told, of, of this particular man, Tiberius Caesar. Uh, John the Baptist began his ministry. Now when Augustus died, Jesus was probably getting close to 20. Now when Tiberius, uh, in, the, in the 15th year of Tiberius, when John the Baptist begins his ministry, Jesus is somewhere in the neighborhood of 33, 34. Uh, when uh, John the Baptist begins his ministry. And we know that shortly after John the Baptist begins his ministry, then uh, Jesus will begin his as well. What I think is important <clears throat> to point out about this is that Rome is at the height of its power at the time that Jesus Christ has his ministry. It isn't that Jesus comes into the world when all is in chaos, you know, and there's no political authority, and, and so a word like this could, could take hold, like Muhammad, you know, Muhammad came into a chaotic Arabic world when there was really nobody in charge, and so it wasn't so hard for him with just a few hundred people to begin to assume authority. But in the case of Christ, th there had been no greater political power in the Mediterranean world up to that moment in history than Rome. Shortly after Jesus was born, Herod the Great died. Now Herod the Great ruled this particular kingdom that you see here. We, we talked about this before. He had inherited, he had, from his father Antipater, he had been given the governorship of Galilee, and then when his father died, he picked up the governorship here of Judea, and then the Roman Senate decided to make him king of the Jews. So it was the Roman Senate that declared Herod king of the Jews. And so his territory included all of this, this here that you see. Which isn't all, of course, that David and Solomon had ruled because they had ruled a much larger area. But it, but it was the core region that David and Solomon had ruled a thousand years before. Herod the Great... We, we know this from reading scripture as well as from history, was a man with a very large ego. And it was very understandable that he felt threatened when some magi from Mesopotamia showed up and said, oh, by the way, Herod, we're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. What? 
newborn king of the Jews. I haven't had any kids lately, you know. You can understand why he would be upset by this. You see, Herod had already written his will, and Jesus wasn't in it. When Herod died, three of his sons inherited his domain. The eldest of the three is a man by the name of Archelaus, and he was given the title ethnarch, or king, if you will, a ruler of the people, king of Judea. So he was given this part. And two of his half-brothers were given, one was given Galilee plus this little piece over here, which is called Perea, and another half-brother was given this piece over here to the east of uh, Galilee. Herod Antipas was given these regions, and Herod Philip was given this region over there. And uh, these three men would continue in the line of honoring Rome above all. Now, Herod the Great had begun the construction of a city right here called Caesarea. I wonder who he was honoring when he called it Caesarea, right? And it becomes known as Caesarea Maritima, that is maritime or oceanside Caesarea, to separate it from right up here you see Panias, and Herod Philip would change the name to Caesarea Philippi. In other words, honoring Caesar, but also honoring himself in the same process. And Antipas would rule from Sepphoris, which is basically Greek word leaning towards Caesar concept. And then later, a city would be built on the coast here called Tiberius. Wonder who that was named for, you know? And so these would become centers of power for these, quote, Jewish rulers who were really not Jewish because they were by birth Idumeans. They came from down here originally. And Idumea is simply the word for Edom. They had originally lived over here, but the Nabataean Arabs had shoved them out. You see the word Nabatea here. Shoved them out and they moved into southern Judea. And then during the Hasmonean time, I'm just kind of uh, reviewing here. During the Hasmonean time, they were converted. All the men were circumcised and, and they were converted to be Jews. But the Jews who lived here never really viewed them as, as full-fledged Jews. They viewed them still as, as foreigners in, in a sense of the word. Well, Archelaus, who inherited Judea, <coughs> proved to be a brutal tyrant. And during his reign, thousands of people were killed for allegedly being in some way rebellious against him, whether they were or not is another question. Now, do we know from Scripture that he was notorious? Hmm. Well, let's look at the second chapter of, of uh, Matthew at verse 19. Now, we know the story. Herod has slaughtered all the babies in Bethlehem, and Joseph took Mary and the baby off into Egypt. How did Joseph sustain his family in Egypt? Probably. The gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right, that had been given at the time of Christ's birth. In verse 19 we read, But when Herod died, this is Herod the Great, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. Now, verse 19 is 4 B.C., because that's when Herod the Great died. So Jesus has already been born and taken off into Egypt for however long. And a statement that's made in Scripture that Herod slew all the babies in Bethlehem from two years old down implies that Christ could have been as old as two at that time. So you can see, obviously, four, you can go back to six, go back to seven, easily, seven B.C. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now, that implies something about Archelaus, does it not? That Archelaus was not a very nice man. Judea, in, in Judea in place of his father Herod, and he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee and came and lived in the city called Nazareth which was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he shall be called a Nazarene. Now what is interesting about this is that secular historians will tell you that Jesus was born in Nazareth. And they will say the whole story about Bethlehem is just legend. Fortunately, I think that we can fully place our faith in the fact that this is a historical record inspired by God himself. Herod Antipas was ruling up here. So Nazareth was in Galilee. That was ruled by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was no angel. But at least he wasn't as bad as Archelaus. And therefore, Joseph felt free to move his family into Nazareth. Now, exactly how bad was Archelaus? Archelaus was so bad that the Jews and the Samaritans got together, if you can believe this, and sent a delegation to Rome to complain about him. And Herod Antipas... And Herod Philip went with them to complain about their half-brother. Now, certainly their goal was maybe if we can convince um, Augustus about how bad Archelaus is, maybe he'll split the region between us. I, I think that must have been part of their motivation. Another part was the fact that Herod was king. They were just princes. And therefore, he sort of had suzerainty over them. And they didn't like that too much. And so, anyway, they went to Rome, and they convinced Augustus that Archelaus was a bad man. Now, part of what was able to convince them was the fact that he kept getting messages from Judea that everything was in chaos, and people were being killed, and things weren't under control. Rome liked everything very peaceful in the provinces. So Augustus agreed to have Archelaus removed. So in A.D. 6, Jesus would have been about 12. Maybe the story uh, about Jesus going into the temple and disappearing from his family and, and talking to all of the uh, Jewish leaders there all by himself. That may have occurred around the time that Archelaus was being ejected and Judea, rather than being split between the two brothers, which they may have hoped, was converted into a Roman uh, governorship, a procuratorship. And Rome decided they would stick one of their own guys in there and not, not a Herodian. In, in charge. And so that's about the time that Jesus uh, would have been going through that little bar mitzvah kind of uh, time in his, uh, in his life. Where was Archelaus sent? He was sent to the Rhone River Valley in Gaul, which today we call France. Yes, France. The Rhone River Valley is a beautiful place. I wouldn't have sent him there. <laughs> That's Burgundy. That's where the sun shines and, you know, where people like, you know, the famous painter of sunflowers and swirls in the sky, Van Gogh, you know, where he could go out and, and, and do his plein air kind of painting in this beautiful, beautiful... I wouldn't have sent him there. 
I would have sent him to Germany, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Germany was outside the empire. That's why. Not, not because Germany is a beautiful, oh, it is, I've been there. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful place, too, parts of it. Tom? No, no, he wasn't set up as a governor. He was kind of retired. <laughs> but you know, that was a. Actually, it was awfully good for him. I mean, of course, he only lived uh, 12 years beyond that. But uh, anyway, that's 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 what happened to him. So, this is setting the stage again. Remember Galatians 4:4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. All of this is preparation for the fullness of time, and is the expression of the fullness of time. And Leroy pointed out a verse to me last Sunday or the Sunday before, I don't remember when it was, Leroy. But in Mark 1.15, Jesus, Jesus himself validates this when he speaks after John is taken into custody and Jesus begins preaching. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So part of that preparation is Rome taking direct control of Judea. Because you see that's going to implicate now the national power of Rome. Because a Roman procurator is in charge here now. And at the time Jesus did his ministry, that procurator was Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate came to Judea in the year 26. He stayed for 10 years, which was longer than most governors did. Most governors, they, you know, they stuck it out two, maybe four years, and they want to go home. They didn't like being in Judea. It was a difficult place to rule. The Jews were not too happy with Rome. And, you know, whereas much of the world that was conquered by the Romans, they didn't have a big problem because they were pagans, the Romans were pagans, and add a few more gods to your pantheon, what's the big deal? But in Judea, you worship the one and only true God, and all pagans are totally outside the veil, or outside the pale, and, you know, it becomes a stressful thing for the Roman governors to try to pacify such a people. You will remember that Archelaus' two half-brothers, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip, uh, became rather infamous when John the Baptist accused Herod Antipas of having his brother's wife, Herodias. And this caused a lot of stress, especially for Herodias. And of course, you know, she's the one whose daughter, Salome, did the little belly dance and got Herod so excited that he allowed John the Baptist to be executed. And, of course, this is all part, again, of the fullness of time, of the preparation of the ministry, because John the Baptist was the voice in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, and along comes the Lord, immediately in his footsteps. From a reading of the Gospels, I think it's easy for us to understand that the Jews in Judea and Galilee had a significant amount of freedom, freedom of movement, Freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Because you see, Jesus gathering crowds. Normally, Rome's not too happy with crowds. Because usually crowds are gathering for purposes that are uh, antithetical to Rome's purposes. But, but thousands would gather. Right? Jesus fed 5,000 at once, 4,000 at once. And, and so large crowds were freely able to gather. As long as the Jews paid their taxes, which could be oppressive at times, and as long as they refrained from criminal activity or didn't revolt against Rome, the Jews lived in relative peace if they were directly under Roman rule. Now, sometimes if they were under an, you know, somebody else like Herod and his family, there, there could be, uh, that could be problematic. 
But generally speaking, Rome loved peace above everything else. And if you were peaceful, they didn't usually bother you too much. And paid your taxes, of course. Of course, the, the, for the Jews, the obvious symbols of the Roman presence, you know, the symbols of the legions, which oftentimes were pagan symbols, the symbols of the procuratorship, these, of course, were a problem. They could be annoying and they could even be offensive to the national pride of the Jews, but you could live with that. Unfortunately, for the majority of the Jews, their view of Messiah was a conquering hero who would come in this life, in this world, and would set up a kingdom in Jerusalem, and who would smash the hated Romans and become the most powerful kingdom on the planet, and the Jews couldn't wait for that day and for that hour. Jesus didn't fit that mold. There are those who say Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Well, those who say that haven't really read the New Testament. Not only does he claim to be the Messiah, he claims to be God, clearly. In fact, they even tried to stone him, and they said, well, what for? Because you, being a man, have claimed to be God. But Jesus didn't fit the mold because he was preaching a spiritual kingdom that was going to be built by the sword of the word of God, not by the steel sword of man, which is what they were hoping for. You know, even Peter had a sword, right? He wasn't too accurate, but he got an ear. When Jesus was asked about defending himself, he said his kingdom is not of this world. I guess you could say his kingdom was out of this world, couldn't you? Although he would eventually gain millions of followers, in the first century, the number of Jesus' followers was only in the few hundreds of true believers who were willing to stick with him to the end or at least to be revived from a near catatonic, uh, you know, trance uh, by his death afterwards, by his appearances to them. Now, one of the things that comes out of the New Testament is the religiosity of the leadership of the Jews, a religiosity that blinded the men and women to the truth. And it's illustrated by Jesus' harshest condemnation, not falling upon the tax collector or the prostitute, but on the very spiritual leaders of his society, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They got the brunt of it. And what made the Pharisee Nicodemus stand out so was that he was one of the precious few of those leaders who could actually perceive truth with a capital T and was willing, even in the dark at least, to go and talk to Jesus and find out how one might be born again. You see, most of Jesus' disciples were common folk. Galilean fishermen didn't hold high rank in Judea. And the inner circle of disciples and then the next two or three rings of followers around Jesus were almost all of the lower ranks of society. In fact, one of the things you will see later on when, the, when Christianity begins to take a foothold in the Roman Empire, it's the lowest class of people that becomes the most numerous membership of the church. And it's that, that fact is what turns the upper class off on Christianity. If it's good enough for those swine, it can't be good enough for us. Which is, of course, what the scripture says. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man, a powerful man, an arrogant man. You can add anything you want there to get into the kingdom 
of heaven. Territorially, Jesus ministered throughout this, this land. His ministry focused in Galilee. He traveled as far north in Galilee as Caesarea Philippi up here. Which, by the way, if you've never been to Israel, is a beautiful place. It's just gorgeous, isn't it? I know some of you have seen it. I mean, one of the three headwaters of the Jordan River comes right out of the base of the mountain there. I mean, it's a spring. It just comes right out of the mountain and flows beautifully by here in a nice crystal clear spring. And, and there's trees around. And it's, it's a very, very beautiful location. You know, it's, it's the environment where Jesus said, And who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus also journeyed into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Here's Tyre. Sidon's up here. So at some point, he, he traveled up into that region briefly. He traveled briefly into the Decapolis, too. This is the Decapolis. Deca is ten, polis, city. Polis comes from the Greek uh, word for city-states, the early city-states of uh, Greece. So this was a collection of ten cities that were largely Greek in orientation and mostly Greek in population, like Jerasha and Pella and Hippos and Gadara and so forth. And Jesus briefly touched on, on this area here in his ministry. And we know that he traveled through Samaria and then he spent a good deal of time also down in Judea, or at least part of his time down in Judea. So from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem. We know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but as far as I understand, and, and Dr. Walmart can correct me if I'm wrong, I, I didn't find any record of him ministering further south than Jerusalem during his ministry. Is there any record? You know, down in this direction. So it's like he never went down into Idumea, to preach to the Edomians, you know, from which Herod, the Herods had sprung. And so here, here is the, the region of his ministry right through here. So he touched on all three of the provinces, the, the province of, of Herod Philip and of Antipas and then the Roman procuratorship of Judea. He ministered in all three of those regions. Because his teaching was authoritative, Remember, they said he doesn't teach like the scribes, the Pharisees. He teaches like one who is an authority. Because of his authoritative teaching and the many miracles that he's performed, Jesus at one time had a very significant following. We know there were 5,000 he fed at one time. There were at least 5,000 who were interested in what he had to say and in what he was doing. But most of these were celebrity fans. And we see these people at the triumphal procession. Oh, you know, putting the palm branches down and hail Jesus, Hosanna to him who comes in the name of the Lord. And within less than one week, they are saying, crucify him. Because celebrity fans are extremely fickle and are quickly alienated if you don't tickle them with your continued activities and words. Jesus' sudden death at the high point of his ministry shocked those that were sympathetic to him. Even though he had told the disciples what was going to happen, they, it had not really sunk in. Because some of them said, oh, you know, I'll die with you up in Jerusalem. You know. <laughs> yeah, sure you will. 
and, and even those who were agnostic, who were, who were reserving their final decision to see what was going to go on, even many of those were shocked at the sudden end. I mean, Jesus' ministry ended sudden. Think how suddenly it is. One Sunday, he, he comes in triumphantly into the city, and by that Friday, he's hanging on a cross, dead. That's sudden. High point of ministry, cut off right at that very moment of time. But it's all part of God's cosmic plan, the fullness of time concept. God's plan is inscrutable to the human mind. You and I can't figure it out. Well, we can look back with hindsight and say, ah, yeah, I can see this. God prepared Rome and God did this. <laughs> but to look at the overall plan and to be looking into the future, Jesus said that unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, there can be no fruit. He demonstrated that clearly when he, of course, died, and then he arose from the grave, and then secondly, he ascended into heaven from the top of the Mount of Olives. He had said that the Comforter couldn't come until he had gone back to the Father. And so he ascended into heaven, and when he did so, he gave a powerful statement, which is recorded for us in the first chapter of Acts. First chapter of Acts, reading at verse 1. First thing Luke tells us here is, similarly to the way he began his Gospel of Luke, he says, this, the first account I composed, O Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So what, what he is saying here is that I being of a different mindset than most Jews. Remember the Jews, the Jewish way of thought is, is not linear. They don't think chronologically like people who have accepted the Judeo-Greco-Roman, uh, is what I'm trying to say, the Greco-Roman thought pattern. We tend, Greeks tended to think linearly. The Jews didn't think linearly chronologically. The time events, when they happened, weren't important to them. But to anybody who's a historian, the order in which things happened, those are important, you know. And so he is imposing a chronology on here as he does in the Gospel of Luke. Two, verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of me. For John baptized with water, but you will now be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. In the, in the King James, after that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. He prophesied again of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who would come, the comforter, who would be the literal energizer of the church. And he gives here 
uh, right here in this eighth verse, the power and the program of the church. The power of the church is the Holy Spirit. The program of the church is to be witnesses throughout the world. The immediate fulfillment of this, or near immediate fulfillment, just ten days later, is given to us in the second chapter of Acts. And I'd like to read a few verses from there, beginning at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are, these, why are not all these... Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts around Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. I mean, right there, you've got Iran, you've got Iraq, you've got Asia Minor or Turkey, you've got North Africa and Rome, all there in that particular passage. Cretans and Arabs, so the island of Crete and Arabs from down south, the Arabian Peninsula. We hear them in our own languages speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. The world's always got an answer, doesn't it? So we can imagine that what happened at the upper room was pretty significant because people gathered because they heard a sound. Wasn't like a quiet little sound inside the room. It must have been a whoom, you know. There were no sonic booms in those days, so they all gathered together to find out what in the world was going on. The seed had fallen to the ground and died, and the fruit was now coming. Because Peter will preach to that gathered crowd, and the scripture tells us that 3,000 would be converted. How many preachers? would like to go forth and preach one sermon and have 3,000 come into the kingdom. Well, Billy Graham's had that experience, I suppose, but most haven't. And the last verse in the second chapter reports that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And the question is, who were these people who were being saved? They were either all Jews or Jewish proselytes. The early church was made up in almost entirely of Jews and Jewish proselytes. You know, how dare Christians later become anti-Semitic? Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. The writers of the scripture were Jews. The early church was all Jewish. It's demonic. It's diabolical to view the Jews in this hated way. How many Jews are we talking about? Acts 4.4 4 informs us that within weeks of Pentecost, the church had grown to 5,000 men. Conservatively, that's 15,000 people when you count women and children and probably 20,000. No wonder the Pharisees and the Sadducees became desperate. 
They'd never seen anything like it in their lives. Massive conversions and the, the explosive growth of this church, these followers of Jesus whom they nailed to the cross and he was gone. And yet he wasn't gone. While he was alive, he had a few hundred followers at the most and now they number in the thousands, the tens of thousands. So what did they do? First, they threatened the apostles. Don't you, do, don't you talk in his name anymore. Well, that did a lot. So then they stuck him in prison. However, the angel let him out of prison. So you can imagine how frustrated the Sanhedrin was becoming by this time. Can't threaten them, can't imprison them because they get freed. What are we going to do? The powerlessness of the Jewish leaders to halt the work of God is dramatically portrayed for us in the fifth chapter of Acts, and we'll end with this passage this morning. Fifth chapter of Acts, verse 25. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. <laughs> Can you see the irony in this? I mean, to me, it's so hilarious. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. Would you please come with us? For they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they brought them, they stood them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. One of the most profound statements of the early church, which still applies today, of course. The God of our fathers raised, Je raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and as a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to the, to the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, take care of what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after this, Judas of Galilee rose in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God." So they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. Thumb in the eye of the authorities. How come? Because it was better to obey God than man. Well, we'll go on with this and see how this develops uh, next time.